All right, well, I think we are at the top of the hour. So I will go ahead and start this, the um, latest here IAS USA dialogue. Um, today, uh, uh, Dr. Del Rio and I will talk to you about the latest on COVID-19 meets HIV, variants, vaccines, health disparities, and other fast evolving issues. I'm Wendy Armstrong, I'm a professor of medicine at Emory University. Um, and I will let Dr. Del Rio introduce himself and then I'll make a few announcements. Yeah, I'm very glad to be here, Wendy. This is uh, Carlos Del Rio. I'm a professor of medicine here at Emory University, and I'm also uh, a member of the board of the IAS USA. I'm very excited to be in one of these conversations. Yeah, so we've uh, this is a reprise for us. We've done this before, but before we start, I do want to remind the audience to go ahead and use the question and answer button to uh, ask questions. We will plan to have a dialogue for about 40 minutes, and then we will turn to the audience questions um, that hopefully we have answered some of them through the course of the dialogue. Um, I'll let you know that chat has been um, disabled um, and the dialogue is not available for CME, but will be available as a web and podcast after live broadcast. Um, we will also include the disclaimer, which uh, is really important in these times that the uh, COVID-19 information rapidly can go, um, can become out of date. And so we will tell you what we uh, think we know now, but uh, I can't guarantee that we will know the same thing tomorrow. Um, but thank yeah, thanks to everyone um, so much for joining. You know, I think uh, Carlos, one of the um, uh, questions that was most prevalent um, uh, before in the uh, questions that were submitted before we started was really trying to understand the relationship between COVID-19 disease and HIV infection. And so I think that that's been a really evolving issue um, that's been fascinating to me over the course of these last many months. Um, do you want to um, uh, tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think all of us uh, who take care of HIV patients and started seeing COVID, we, we, re we said this is going to you know, sort of produce havelock in our HIV patients. They're immunosuppressed. They have uh, a lot of uh, risk factors with their, you know, a lot of same populations. You know, African Americans, poor individuals, we're going to see a lot of patients with HIV and COVID in the hospital. And the reality is, I, I think most of us were surprised that that indeed was not necessarily the case, even though, as you know from, from your clinic, many of our patients were getting infected. And, and I think we initially got one impression and then we started to, to, re, to understand a little more. So I mean, I think at this point in time, what I what I feel is that that this is a very complex issue. You have yes, probably immune suppression, probably a low CD4 count uh, increases your risk of complications, increases your risk of of death. But it is also the other determinants that are driving a lot of the a, a lot of the risk. And teasing those things out has been incredibly difficult. Yeah, I totally agree. I will say, you know, that this is one of the areas where I was wrong um, initially. That at first, um, in our very large clinic that that you know, um, which uh, for the audience is um, really has a high percentage of late stage HIV patients, um, that uh, um, you know we weren't seeing a lot of severe disease. And I think uh, many of us um, uh, talked about the possibility that um, HIV associated immunosuppression may prevent some of the inflammatory response that was driving disease. And I think um, that's an area where I think we've had to um, dial back um, substantially. And I think uh, the, the data is getting a little more clear, but there are so many questions. It does look like um, the prevalence of disease and uh, or, or the uh, hit rate is not necessarily different than matched um, controls that have the similar you know, living situation and comorbidities. So it's not doesn't look at that patients who are living with HIV have a greater risk of contracting COVID. But, um, but certainly it is, like you said, starting to look like there is an increased risk of severe outcomes. Um, but what's driving that? And uh, we know um, uh, that, um, that that may be comorbidities, which are highly prevalent in, uh, in patients with HIV. Um, there's data that shows that uh, the risk is of having comorbidities is greater in those with HIV than in those without. Um, uh, is it um, uh, an increased propensity towards inflammation? Um, we know that there's um, increased inflammation in many patients with HIV. Is it the immune suppression and uh, worse outcomes in folks with lower CD4 counts? Uh, it's a fascinating area, and I don't see that we're going to tease that out and be able to say that HIV infection alone is an independent risk factor. Do you? 
No, I really don't think HIV infection alone is an independent risk factor. It is not HIV, the virus, but I think it is the person living with HIV that because of a series of circumstances that that person is therefore at increased risk, but it's not necessarily just the virus. And again, uh, you know, as you know, some of the, you know, we saw initial studies coming from, I guess, initially from Spain, from Italy, uh, then our own study here in Atlanta, New York had some studies initially from, in the, from sort of single institution studies or few or city studies that, that didn't seem that, that big. And then we started to see cohort studies. And I think studies from London, studies from uh, South Africa, uh, studies from New York are painting a little bit of, of, of a different picture. But again, you know, talking about increased risk of complications, increased risk of, risk of death, but it may be in large part driven by all those other factors. And again, you know, it just emphasizes that our patients with HIV do have, we know this for a while, you know, the, the NCDs and non-communicable diseases that we see in patients with HIV of, you know, those of us doing HIV, a lot of times it's not managing the, the HIV anymore, but it's managing the obesity, diabetes, hypertension that the patients have. And that may be a lot of what's driving a lot of the, a, a lot of the excess mortality and excess risk of, of, of complications. Uh, so it's, it's really, again, emphasizing the part that, you know, you don't treat, you, you treat the patient, right? It's the entire patient that you need to think about. Yeah, so I think the take home um, is exactly that, that, um, that uh, I, I don't think we're going to completely tease this apart, but patients who are living with HIV do appear to be at increased risk of uh, potentially severe disease, whether it is for any of those reasons we've discussed. So I think that's the take home. And um, to me, that uh, uh, reinforces the notion that I think this should be included as one of the um, chronic diseases that increase risk of uh, severe outcomes and therefore should be in a higher phase of COVID vaccination. Oh, I, I totally agree with you. You know, there's still a lot of states are still having discussions of who is included in their 1B. And, and I think we need to be very clear that, you know, HIV has to be one of those categories simply because, again, may not be just the HIV, but is, is who is impacted by HIV in our country. We should not forget that it is primarily you know, individuals living in poverty, primarily li people living in chronic conditions, primarily, you know, people living in comorbidities that we're talking about. So it's the individual with HIV that's high risk. And because of that condition, they should be in the, in the high risk category. And, you know, we have, I think we have clinics, uh, you know, like yours and others that, that, that would be ideal settings to provide vaccination to patients and would really be, you know, you, you have done a great job in your clinic of, you know, doing testing, doing uh, infusion of monoclonal antibodies and doing all those others, you, you, you fit into comprehensive care, all those other things. And I think adding vaccines make a lot, makes a lot of sense. And in fact, yeah, in our I, health system, you're beginning to be one of the first ones to start, one of the first clinics that started vaccination. I, I think this is an area though, where anybody listening is interested in advocacy. I, like, as you said, the states um, uh, to some extent, um, I mean, there are recommendations from the CDC and ACIP about what high risk populations are. And I think HIV needs to be moved into um, one of the ones that uh, clearly is associated with increased risk. But then I think we need to advocate at the state level to be sure that uh, 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 our patients are included um, in um, earlier rollout in phase 1B. But um, but you're right, we have started vaccinating and we've started vaccinating um, the over 65 um, patients in our clinics so that are um, meeting that criteria. And, uh, you know, and that's been a really interesting experience that we can talk more about. But I think we also need to look at models where we vaccinate not only in clinics, but in the community as well. In the community, um, right. And, yeah. and then the, the, other, the other issue I think is, you know, I, I've been surprised looking at the data. Maybe you want to mention a little bit you've been doing a lot of testing in the clinic, the percentage of patients that are, have evidence, have been infected, right? I mean, you have a large, you know, positivity rate, a very high positivity rate in your patients. Again, emphasizing that it is their living conditions, it is who they are that puts them at very high risk of, of being infected. Yeah, no, there's no question. And our, um, our positivity rates have been extremely high. You know, I, I think there may be I think one factor at play is certainly that it's a high-risk population, but um, but I also think that it speaks a little bit to health systems and the fact that uh, our patients are very comfortable with the clinic and comfortable coming into the clinic to get tested, 
And I think many in the black and brown communities um, that are not um, living with HIV don't have that very comfortable place to go. And so I think we probably also get a greater proportion of our sick patients in to get tested um, compared to um, those who don't have a resource like this. And I think that's a problem. You know, but, but, but it also speaks about the importance of trust, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like in HIV, in COVID, if you've got trust in the healthcare system, you're going to get tested, you're going to get vaccinated, you're going to do all those other things. But at the core of this is really trust. And I think one of the things that we need to leverage and we have continued, and I hope we can leverage more in addressing COVID is actually the Ryan White and the, the clinics and the trust that we build in many of those clinics that actually allows, you know, we don't need to invent a new trust system. We know how that works. We know how to work with community, et cetera, and how to make that work. I, no, I agree. And I think um, one place where that comes out in spades is when we think about vaccine hesitancy. Um, the uh, trust has been so important. And, you know, um, uh, when we look at um, vaccinating, and we can talk about vaccination in, in people living with HIV, but, um, but then convincing people to uh, uh, be vaccinated is, you know, it's a one-on-one experience. It's a longitudinal series of conversations that starts before vaccines actually available um, and explores um, people's fears and concerns and anxieties. And, um, and, uh, and again, I think um, we're lucky to have the clinic space to do that, but that's a conversation that needs to get out into the community further as well. And it's in a way no different than the conversation you have when you have a newly diagnosed individual and you're deciding you're talking about starting antiretroviral therapy. No, that's absolutely right. I think, the, um, go ahead. Yeah, so I was going to ask you also about, you know, you have done some, uh, and I've gotten some questions about this, you've done some monoclonal uh, antibody infusions in the clinic, and, you know, I got asked a couple times, is there any reason why not to do this in patients with HIV, and I couldn't find anything, but have you read anything related to monoclonal antibodies in patients with HIV? No, no I definitely um, uh, support uh, using monoclonal antibodies in HIV. Again, we have a very, very high rate of comorbidities in our clinic. Um, um, and, uh, and again, feel that um, our patients are at increased risk of severe outcomes just on the, uh, potentially on the basis of their HIV alone. And so we have infused a number of patients um, with really um, uh, no negative results. Um, and, uh, um, and, I, I, and you know, again, because we're focused on our population, so it's a smaller population, we've been able to do so relatively quickly and get people infused in a window that is consistent with where the most benefit may be. But no, I don't think there are any contraindications in living with HIV. No, I agree. And I want to use also this opportunity to just, again, you know, remind people and give a shout out to the active two and the study, because again, it was HIV investigators like David Wall and others who really put this together. And I, I think it's because we feel that this is a population where you really can use this, 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 this monoclonal antibodies early on to prevent them from getting sick because they are a high risk of complications. Um, you know, I think talking about um, vaccines a little bit, uh, um, uh, you know, like I said, that's that's been an ongoing conversation. We've had a lot of questions from our um, uh, uh, population living with HIV about the safety and then the efficacy of um, of vaccines in in the in this population. Um, you've been part of, uh, you've been an investigator in some of the, the studies. What have you seen with safety? Have you seen well, you know, as far as, as far as safety is concerned, uh, the few HIV infected individuals, people living with HIV who participate in vaccine studies. And again, remember the Pfizer, Pfizer study didn't have many, then the Moderna study allowed people with HIV to control HIV. They seem to be doing okay. Uh, what really rocked a lot of us, and I think we can talk a little bit more is when we had just a couple of days ago, you know, the results from the from the Moderna from the Novavax study in South Africa, and and talking about how how the the vaccine didn't perform that well in people with HIV, and I think it's worth having a discussion because I think the data there is is, is skewed significantly by a small number of patients, and maybe you want to say something about it. Sure, I, I actually um, I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's um, it is very skewed. I think. Uh, when you look at the numbers overall, um, you know, the reports are um, in the South African context of 60% efficacy, but that's reduced to, you know, under 50% if you include, uh, 60% efficacy in those who um, are HIV negative, but reduced to 50% efficacy if you include both HIV positive and HIV negative individuals. 
And if you actually dissect the numbers, it's actually, um, I think, very clear that the, the answer is still not, is still out. Um, because there were only, um, in those uh, living with HIV, there were 76 patients in um, the Novavax arm and 72 in the placebo arm. There were four infections in the Novavax arm and only two in the placebo arm. So those numbers are riding on um, nearly equal, you know, uh, numbers um, uh, in each arm with only two, a difference of absolute difference of two in the number in, of infections. And that is way too small to be making sweeping um, uh, generalizations about, to me, about the efficacy of this vaccine in, uh, in the population of individuals living with HIV. So and, and I, I think that is at the moment too, too soon to say. And, and I think it also emphasizes the danger of, of subgroup analysis in a study. Because again, you, you can get into really wrong conclusions when you do subgroup analysis because you, the study was empowered to look at the impact of the vaccine in people with HIV. This was a, a sub-analysis they did afterwards and you're absolutely right. And that's why the confidence intervals are so big, but it's very unfortunate that the media really capture this and it's in the press release and it's everywhere, right? And I think it really, it really throws a, a, a a wrench into those of us working with HIV and in the and the people living with HIV saying, oh, is this vaccine not gonna be effective in, in, in me? And, and my experience from what I can tell so far is there appears to be absolutely no difference whether you have HIV or not, with, at least with the vaccines we have available in this country right now. Yeah, well, so fortunately, um, and that was a, uh, after a lot of advocacy by a lot of groups, and I'm uh, really grateful that so many people mobilized around this that there have been individuals who are living with HIV in all of the trials. And so while I haven't seen many of the subgroup analyses from the others um, yet, um, again, there's been no signal raised otherwise. Um, and so I think um, uh, we need to wait and see the full data set. But, um, but again, I'm so encouraged that there are um, enrolled patients so that we can uh, hope to get a little bit more um, data, but we again, probably need to increase those numbers because they're all relatively small. Um, so let's 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 go into a little bit of a data-free zone. But you know, maybe I would love to hear your your thoughts on this. Um, you know, other vaccines that we use in persons with, living with HIV, we uh, we wait for you know you diagnose somebody with a CD4 count of 50, we wait for them to be suppressed, we then wait for them to get immunologically reconstituted. And many vaccines are you know recommended after somebody gets above 200 CD4 cells. Uh, we don't have any recommendation like that around our COVID vaccines, but but what what would you do? I mean, what would be your your thought? And again, you know, this is data free. We're just having a discussion. Yeah, so yes, with the caveat data free, um, to me, I would treat this like a flu shot right now. We have an ongoing pandemic, and so while uh, I don't know if someone would maximal would respond better um, after, let's say, in a, uh, in a uh, a patient with um, without viral suppression, I suspect someone might respond better if they have viral suppression. In the midst of an ongoing pandemic, I, 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 I'm just not sure that I would wait and I would treat it like a flu shot. And if I have an arm in front of me that is willing to take a vaccine, I would like to give it. I, I, I totally agree with you and I feel the same way. And that's why we started talking about the high rates we're seeing in our patients, et cetera. Even if you get some protection, it's better than no protection. And I agree with you. I think once we have you know, once we expand to the 1B group, and if HIV, persons living with HIV are included in the 1B, we should just go ahead and when we diagnose people literally make that, as you say, as a flu shot, you know, a priority. We, and we may find differently, but again, it will be a good, good study subject, but, but something that I wouldn't wait, honestly. Yeah, no, um, and, and I think one thing that's, you know, we have obsessed a lot, I think, as a nation and as a people about these subtle differences in efficacy between all of the vaccines. Um, but the bottom line is all of them are looking pretty good against severe disease where we at least um, uh, excluding what we don't know about the South African variant right now, but um, but uh, uh, they're looking pretty good. And if I can, you know, take uh, my patient who lives in a congregate setting from uh, you know, having efficacy against severe disease, but perhaps not against mild or moderate disease. I'll take that in a second. And, and you know, even the data from South Africa and the South African variant looks looks really good against severe disease and, 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 and mortality. It doesn't look that good for mild to moderate disease, but you know, it still, it, it prevents you from getting very ill. I think it's a good vaccine. 
Yeah, although I think with the caveat that the um, AstraZeneca trial didn't enroll very many people at high risk of progression. So I think there's some nerves about uh, if they had a population that uh, was at risk of severe disease. Correct. I think with an asterisk. Correct, correct. So, uh, so how can we use what we're learning? I mean, you know, we have had discussions in our country, I think, or as long as I can remember about social determinants of health. And we have heard, you know, we've been at meetings, we've heard presentations, we've done it ourselves, quite frankly, talking about, you know, the driver of, 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 of the disease here is, is poverty, is, is housing, is, is transportation, you know, lack of transportation. But we really, I don't think as a nation have, have done anything seriously to, 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 to really do and confront social determinants of health. And I see COVID as an opportunity to once and for all really begin to address this what what you know you you had the opportunity to to say something to the Biden administration you know uh, Dr. Marcela Nunes who's in charge of equity what what would you say we need to do <laughs> well thanks for such an easy question <laughs> um, um, I, 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 uh, I'm going to size up a little bit and say I'm just so grateful that this is turning a spotlight onto social determinants of health, and it's a spotlight that is sorely needed. Um, obviously, we're turning that spotlight now in the midst of COVID-19, but we need to keep that spotlight trained on so many, um, so many uh, health um, issues, but including, of course, the HIV, which is near and dear to my heart. But, um, you know, and I think there's a lot we need to do to understand what we can do. These are all tricky problems. Clearly, you know, um, uh, housing, for example, is critical. And I think we um, need to challenge ourselves to, uh, and our governments to, um, to, to develop uh, more um, uh, housing options and so on. But I mean, I think this gives us um, an incredible opportunity to also think about how we reach people and what their access is to healthcare. And I think that's an easier nut to crack sometimes than some of those others. And, you know, I believe that we need to tear down our um, notions that all, um, all medical activity needs to occur in brick and mortar clinics, um, that as we develop new strategies to really vaccinate um, the population at risk and uh, and, uh, and I think um, we must, uh, I would ask the Biden administration to, uh, as I think they plan to, to um, uh, really um, require states to make efforts to think about addressing um, disparities in vaccine administration. If that's then getting out into community settings, into FQHCs, onto, into um, community grocery stores or community pharmacies um, to administer vaccine and have sort of one-on-one -on -one conversations with champions, that's a model that can be exploited and used for other health issues as well. I mean, think about if we then can use that model for testing or for uh, um, blood pressure, uh, taking blood pressure, blood pressure control, or um, you know, developing pop-up clinics, or uh, you know, really, if we can learn how to go to where the people are instead of make the people come to us, which then brings in transportation issues and stigma issues and all kinds of other things, I think we can be so much more successful. And so to me, um, it, it's about um, encouraging creative solutions and using this vaccination campaign to then learn strategies that we can use for clinical care. Well, you know, I, I agree. And the reason I asked the tough question is because probably you, you, maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't, but today the, the Biden administration equity task force members were announced. And I was very pleased to see Dr. James Hildreth as one of the members and, you know, Dr. Hildreth is the president of Meharry College uh, uh, School of Medicine, but he also is going to be uh, a little plug for, you know, Croy in a couple of weeks, we're going to have him as a plenary speaker at Croy, and he's going to talk about equity, and he's going to talk about disparities, and I really think with, with Jim, with James, we really have, the IHIV community really have a strong, has a strong advocate in that community, and I think, you know, he's going to be asking for advice and, and what things to do, and I think we can really use the COVID focus that the equity team is having to really address issues impacting our HIV in persons living with HIV. And I think it's a huge opportunity to have him in there. He understands HIV, he cares about HIV, and he he's one of us. So I think I'm really happy to see him in that in that in that task force. No, that's awesome. So so you know the uh, uh, the issue of of uh, you know, one issue that comes up is is, there, is, is, is trials, right? And as you said, in, in uh, a lot of work has been done in the uh, 
by the advocacy community to have persons living with HIV included in trials, but only trials, the vaccine trials right now only including people with, uh, with control HIV. And, uh, you know, it would be nice to have some data on people who, who don't have, who have a low CD4 count or don't have control HIV. The, people, the persons you and I were talking about, and, you know, maybe it's not going to be a phase three trial, but maybe it will be a phase four trial. It may be an opportunity to actually get either CFARS or NIH or others to, to, to fund or, or industry even to fund studies in those populations that maybe we as, as, as providers and as clinic investigators can potentially get some funding to look at that. Because I think those are going to be, it's a little bit like the pregnant woman issue, you know, they weren't included in the clinical trials, but the questions come up, you know, the population is still there and you have to address the questions. Uh, you know, go ahead. And as I say, and I, you know, I think one of the original concerns about um, including um, uh, uh, those living with HIV with, um, with, without viral suppression um, was safety. And again, I don't um, think that uh, with, uh, you know, most of these vaccine products that safety is an issue, is a, is a real concern for me. Um, even in someone with a low CD4 count. And I think- Yeah, I think it's gonna be like a flu shot. The worst thing that's gonna happen is it's not gonna produce antibodies, right? It's not gonna, right. it's not gonna, I mean, it's the efficacy that I worry about, but not the safety. Yeah, no, and I, I but I think I get, I get asked that quite a lot um, by um, others. If we think the vaccine is safe in um, patients living with HIV, is there a concern with an mRNA vaccine in someone with reverse transcriptase? Could it become DNA and therefore incorporate into the, um, genome and the answer is no. Um, that there, that those, um, uh, that's all. All of that is in different compartments in the cell, um, uh, nucleus and non-nucleus, and so on. I think um, uh, uh, there's so many. There are concerns that really haven't been borne out in any way that should restrict um, pursuing those kinds of uh, additional studies at this point. So it's interesting that you bring that up because I was actually asked uh, yesterday that question about, you know. Should I get an mRNA vaccine because I'm taking a reverse transcriptase inhibitor and that's going to inhibit my, my the mRNA to to produce what it's supposed to do? And I said no, it doesn't do that. But you know, we we people tend to get confused, and I think we need to clarify those issues that you don't need to stop your antiretrovirals if you're getting vaccinated. You know, you're totally fine and can continue taking them. And again, for our, uh, so I'll make a, another plug um, uh, for something I've been involved in, which is for our um, providers on the call. Um, HIVMA has a really terrific fact sheet on their website. If you just uh, Google HIVMA COVID vaccine, um, for uh, for providers to answer questions like this that may come from patients, it's written at a provider level, um, but it answers questions that patients may raise about um, uh, vaccines in uh, in patients with HIV. And so that's a resource I think for those of us who are in the um, in uh, who are administering vaccines to our population. That's great. That's a, that's a wonderful resource. And glad you mentioned it because yeah, it's really nicely done. Uh, you know, there's, there's 1.2 million persons living with HIV in our country. What, what strategies, what, what messages, how do we ensure that we, we get to them and how would you, would you make sure that we can develop the, uh, you know, get them vaccinated? Yeah. I mean, um, I think, uh, it's, um, a similar strategy probably to the whole rest of the country. I mean, I don't think um, uh, people living with HIV are unique necessarily in uh, needing a different sort of outreach, but I do think um, because um, uh, there are so many that come from black and brown communities or so many where trust is, uh, is, is, is an issue with the medical system. Um, and then I think probably there are additional or unique layers of concern based on um, uh, uh, having HIV. Um, I, I think it's, it, it, is, it requires champions in clinics and it's gonna require champions on the ground in communities. And I think those two things are both key. I think the, the trust of the um, uh, provider, clinician, patient relationship is a huge benefit. And I've had numerous conversations with patients who have been very nervous about the vaccine. And, uh, and again, it's being very open. It is um, not dismissing uh, fears and anxieties that are real. Um, it's sometimes um, you know, uh, being willing to start a conversation and then continue it uh, at the next visit. But I think, again, um, I can't think of the number of times someone has said to me, 
Um, I trust you, Doc. If you tell me it's okay, I, I'm going to do it. Um, and so I think um, I think we as um, uh, physicians and clinicians um, need to um, leverage that um, and, and do that. Uh, but I, again, I think we need to leverage community members, community advocates in the HIV community, very, very powerful, important voices to get the message out. Um, very um, knowledgeable and, and, and terrific advocates. Um, so it's going to take all sorts of levels um, of, of people, I think, to, uh, to ensure that we get our whole U.S. population vaccinated, um, including um, our population of individuals living with HIV. I agree with you, but I think one advantage that we do have in the, in the HIV community is that we have an organized community. We have, I mean, there's not, we have an advocacy, we have, you know, HIVMA, we have uh, Ryan White clinics. So I think going back to this whole issue of advocacy, I think getting together and really advocating at the federal and state level to ensure that that person living with HIV are in the 1B priority, I think is one thing that we can do very effectively. And we are an organized community. And, you know, we've been, this is a community that has fought for many things from the beginning. And I think this is just another fight to take to get and, you know, don't wait until don't wait for somebody to write you into the, into the priorities. Just, you know, use your advocacy to explain why you need to be in the priorities. And I think creating those messages of why HIV, you know, persons living with HIV need to be in the priority, I think is going to be really important as we communicate with, with, with you know, public health leaders. And, um, and, you know, so many people have asked about variants. Um, uh, and I think um, that, again, uh, underscores the need for us to try and move this as quickly as we can. Um, that the, this is a push and a conversation because we need to get viral transmission down in this country in order to decrease the risk that um, the, at least the South African and Brazilian variants um, uh, don't have the opportunity to take hold in the same way. I think that cat is out of the bag um, with the uh, uh, B117 variant uh, originally described in Britain. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the issue of variants is something that just continues to worry, to worry me. And I think we have in this race between vaccinating, controlling transmission, because again, we, we know from HIV that viruses that are not reproducing or not transmitting are not mutating and therefore don't become resistant. So if we can, the transmission and mutations occur when RNA viruses are replicating. And if they're transmitting, that's when they're mutating. So I really worry that we know in HIV that we need to bring the, the COVID viral load, community viral load down significantly. <laughs> As I say, we have some lessons in HIV that we have learned um, the hard way um, and can uh, translate those, um, I think, in other ways. So, so today, today you're, you probably saw the MMWR that came out of, of face masking. So, so are you going to do anything differently yourself or in the clinic? Are you going to recommend double masking? Are you going to recommend an extra mask? What, what, what are your thoughts about all the data that came out? So I'm going to go into my data-free zone again. Um, you know, I think um, I I I think that again, a surgical level or a cloth mask can be very effective. But what I think is the probably the most the lesson from that MMWR and the lesson that I think um, we've learned in other ways is that what's really important is fit and multi-layer. And so what hasn't been, um, what wasn't, what the MMWR, you know, talks about double masking with pictures of a poorly fitting surgical mask and a um, thin um, uh, cloth mask over it, which essentially gives you a better a fit and double layer and multi-layer. Um, I think that's what we need is fit and multi-layer. I think there are cloth masks that fit very tightly that are fit and multi-layer. And I would love to see those studied because I, I suspect that they're quite effective as compared to just the single, um, single ply with the, the ear loops um, that are a little bit baggy, at least on my face. Um, and so I'm not going to do anything different because I have a, a cloth mask that is fit and multi-layer that I use in the community. And I have a surgical mask that I've got knotted um, for a good fit that I use in the clinic. And, um, and I reserve use of an N95 when I am being a critically ill-known COVID patient. I am 100% in agreement with you. I think the most important thing is that we all wear a mask, that we wear it correctly, and that it fits appropriately in our face. And, you know, a multi-layer multi, a multi -layer mask, as you mentioned. But, you know, it's not totally data-free. I mean, you know, the, you know, we've seen in, in our hospitals, in our clinics, since we have mass mandate, mask mm -hmm. enforcement in our clinics, and it wasn't a double mask. The infections in healthcare workers went dramatically down. It's not like 
the data is very clear. So I think I think I feel comfortable wearing a a well fit mask, uh, and uh, and I don't feel the need to give everybody an N95, even though yeah. you know some people are saying, oh, you know, we need the best mask possible. We need a mask, period. We need a good mask, and everybody needs to be wearing a good mask. Yeah, no, we, we need everybody to wear a mask. And surgical masks, I think, are very effective. Um, and uh, yeah, if we can accomplish getting a greater percentage of individuals in the United States wearing a mask um, in public places outside the house, I would be thrilled. And I think we would see huge revenues from that. So we were, you know, very pleased, of course, to see, you know, CDC come with a with a mandate for masking and transportation. And, but, you know, we need, and there's some nice data that just came out from, you know, Peter Rivera and others showing that states that have mass mandates, you know, had lower, you know, increase in cases early on that those that did not. So again, emphasizing that this at the community level actually makes a difference. So it's not so much about, you know, the double mask or whatever, it's about the masking and, and get everybody masking, I think is, is critically important. And I think that's an important thing to, to, to remind our patients, right? And to, to tell our, our friends and our community about the importance of masking and, and, and telling people how to wear a mask. Because again, it's, if you don't wear it appropriately, it's not gonna work. No, that's right. And I think um, uh, increasing hysteria about everybody trying to use an N95 that um, is, um, yeah, honestly, I find them quite suffocating over the long period of time and uh, um, uh, that are scarce and that we need in our hospitals and that uh, I just don't think they're necessary. Um, I think uh, what we, and, and if that decreases mask use because folks are uncomfortable, then we've really actually harmed um, our efforts. Uh, we just need people to mask. So many patients are asking questions about, about vaccines. Uh, have you and your interactions, those one-on-one -on -one interactions been able to change some minds? Oh, I think absolutely. And I think the key again, as, as, as I mentioned, is you're sort of being open-minded. So, you know, the questions, the people are legitimately afraid and, um, and often it is um, uh, a poor, uh, it's been misinformation. And so, for example, um, I, I, a friend of mine um, mentioned that, uh, you know, she had a patient who was terrified of getting COVID and lived with a, a son who was at increased risk and you know, felt certain and wanted them both to be vaccinated at the same time, even though she was a healthcare worker and could get vaccinated earlier. And the reason was that she felt that um, getting um, uh, febrile after vaccine must mean that she could transmit COVID to her child. And so it was a protection of her child that was leading her to delay, instead of realizing that that would protect her child for her the healthcare worker to be vaccinated. So it's again, very patiently listening and openly listening to the stories and understanding the motivation and what the fear is. It's explaining what Operation Warp Speed meant, that it was an infusion of money, but it wasn't cut corners on vaccine trials. Um, explaining um, you know, when, uh, how many people have gone through the trials and how we have watched people for enough months to have a sense of what um, side effects may be present. You know, it, I think explaining things um, in a dispassionate way, acknowledging fear and anxiety, and really delving into what is motivating people to be hesitant um, makes a huge difference. And, and, and we've changed a lot of minds. But I also think, and you and I have talked about this, that when somebody says, okay, doc, I think I'm comfortable with this, I'd like to do it. You want to have vaccine there and ready um, if you can, because it's then going home and somebody else saying, you know, you shouldn't be getting that vaccine that changes minds in the, in the wrong direction. Yeah, I think that's the biggest challenge I'm having right now is you talk to people and you, they, they say, okay, I want to get the vaccine. And then you, they, you, you try to get them a vaccine appointment and there's not one open. It really is a huge missed opportunity. You almost feel like, you know, I feel like I struck out quite frankly, you know. Uh, and I hope that, you know, when we get better vaccine availability, that's gonna change. So you've been vaccinated, I've been vaccinated. I frequently also talk to people about my experience, right? And mm -hmm. very clear, and I said, you know, I, I had pain in my arm, uh, but it wasn't terrible, you know? I had, uh, you know, two days afterwards, I, you know, I, I was feeling, you know, the next day I felt maybe a little down, but then I was fine. And uh, it was certainly less severe than getting was kind of similar to a flu shot, maybe a little more pain, was much less severe than getting Shringrix and not something that a little Tylenol or Advil didn't take care of. How about your experience? 
Yeah, I, um, I'm in that camp of people who wish that I'd had a little bit more response because I'd feel better that I was having uh, the appropriate immune response. But, but you know, to validate, I also have, you know, colleagues who've gotten really, you know, uh, really quite miserable with this for a few days. But again, um, and it's, again, acknowledging that that can happen, but that that outcome, which we know is going to be limited, is a much less bad outcome than getting severe COVID. And severe COVID, all of us have seen, can affect the young, healthy person that you wouldn't expect to be at increased risk, um, as well as it can affect the older person who you would expect to be at increased risk. And so, um, so I think that's the framing. Is uh, you know, I I can't you know if I tell somebody you know I didn't feel bad at all, then um, then when they feel bad, then it actually discredits me a little bit. So I think. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think you, you tell them what you have, but you also tell, tell about the spectrum, right? Yeah, exactly. And, but I think, you know, the one thing I remind people is that, you know, we've had 30 million persons infected with COVID in our country and close to half a million deaths. And we've had, you know, now close to 40 million people vaccinated and no deaths. So, I mean, it's the, the evidence is also clear that this, this makes a huge difference and it's a very effective vaccine. One of the things that I get asked a lot, what do you tell patients about taking Tylenol do you, or anti-inflammatories? Anti do you tell them to premedicate? You don't, what do you do? I personally don't tell them to premedicate for a couple of reasons. Um, one is, is that uh, uh, the symptoms that you're gonna get are likely to be beyond the half-life of that Tylenol anyway. Um, and then if there's any risk that that would decrease your immune responsiveness initially, I sure wouldn't wanna take that risk. But what do you say? Yeah, same thing. I just tell them, you know, get some Tylenol and, and, you know, if you need it after you get the vaccine and you get pain, take it. But otherwise, there's no point in pre-medicating or post-medicating because you don't know. You may be one like you or me that had very mild symptoms. I mean, I literally had a little pain that, you know, I took a extra strength Tylenol once because of the pain and I was fine the next day. And, and by the second vaccine, I didn't even take that. So it's not no point on pre-medicating. It really doesn't make any sense to take a medicine that is not going to make much of a difference. So the, uh, the, the other issue that comes up is, you know, you, you said it at the beginning, uh, how do we, you know, COVID is changing every, you know, it's advancing every, how, how do you keep up with the literature? What, what do we do? I think, um, I think that's really challenging. And I think uh, uh, I'm grateful for um, conversations like this from other experts in areas I don't keep up on as well, for example, um, uh, and for, um, you know, other, others who synthesize uh, the literature, because there's too much for any individual to keep up on. Um, I, I, do you have great resources that you've been using? You know, I think, you know, I think combination of things, you know, people that tell me about things, uh, you know, looking at, at, at Twitter and looking at some trusted sources and, you know, people like Paul Sachs and others. And, uh, uh, and then, you know, I mean, you know, with the caveat that we're both in the editorial board, but I, I like reading Journal Watch. I think we've done a, a good job in Journal Watch in summarizing literature, the COVID literature, and and making, you know, I was very pleased that New England Journal of Medicine made that open access. So all those summaries are open access. And it's just something that I, I still think that those summaries are are, are very relevant, if, you know, because it, there's like, it's like trying to drink from a fire hydrant. There's no way to keep up with everything that is happening. So, um, Carlos, uh, um, uh, one of the questions I see in the Q&A is, have you changed your behavior since you had the vaccine? That's a good question. You know, I, I haven't changed my behavior, but I, I, I am a little more relaxed in the sense that, you know, I mean, I got the other day on the elevator at Grady, and when there were four people on the elevator, I didn't, at the next floor, get off the elevator. I, I felt that I was, you know, I continued dry, dry, going up the elevator, which pre-vaccination, I would have gotten off the elevator the moment there were more than four people on the elevator. I just was very uncomfortable getting in an elevator for a crowd of people. I didn't say, I didn't think the elevator was crowded, but but four was three, three plus me was my limit. Now I was able to make it up to six. So I think there's a little sense of, of being a little more relaxed, but that doesn't mean that I have relaxed my mask wearing, my social distancing and all the other things that I think I'm, I, I did from the beginning, and you know, that have kept me uh, uh, so far uninfected despite being in the wards and seeing patients and other things that, that I think, you know, and again, 
is not because I was, I was, I think I was pretty obsessive about my, the wearing of a mask and my eye protection and all those other things, but I'm a little more relaxed. I think that's, that's the major difference. I, I sleep better. <laughs> Ajay, I get every other day questions from my over 80 year old parents about when they can eat um, at a restaurant or with their friends again. And, um, and it's painful to tell them that I'm just not prepared for them to do that yet. They are now fully vaccinated and are waiting out there two weeks from their last vaccine. Um, and I guess I will, uh, I haven't changed, I have not been in a restaurant and have uh, not changed my behavior in that way either. Although I think, um, uh, and I think it, it requires seeing the rates come down in this country and seeing what the story is gonna be with the variants before I will feel comfortable um, relaxing more uh, what I do, although I agree that uh, there is a weight off my shoulders. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, uh, Josh Weiss from Georgia Tech has put together this this uh, sort of this little application, this little web page where you can actually look if you have, you know, 10 people in a room, depending on what the local transmission is, what the chances are of having somebody with, with COVID there. And uh, you know, at the last, uh, when the epidemic, the way it was happening last Sunday at the Super Bowl, uh, you know, in many cities, if you had a Super Bowl party of 25 people, there was a 30 to 40% chance that there was at least one person with COVID at that Super Bowl party. So, you know, no, enough reasons not to go. But if you were able to bring the transmission down to somewhere between five, you know, 10 or five per hundred, you know, then all of a sudden that number drops significantly, then you can have you know, 25 people and the number of people, you know, with COVID is, is one or less. So I think the community transmission, the amount of virus in the community makes a huge difference into what you'll be able to do and what you won't be able to do. Yeah. I, still, I still think that close environments with poor ventilation, and by that I mean bars, it's a place that I'm not ready to go anytime soon. <laughs> agreed, agreed. I think we need to hold on tight um, for a bit longer, and that's what I've been telling my parents, um, uh, although I've told them they can maybe eat six feet apart from one set of friends who's also fully vaccinated in their bubble. <laughs> you know, so that's a good question. Uh, since we're talking about that, you know, I, I agree with you. I would, I would tell them if they have a set of friends that's been vaccinated, you know, you put in two different parts of the table, six feet apart, and that's fine. How about a question that I get asked all the time is, if somebody's infected and the other person is infected in the household, can they isolate together? Should they be separate? What, what are you telling patients? What are you telling people about that? You know, um, I actually haven't been asked that before, but uh, I guess that I don't see a reason why they can't isolate together. Um, uh, you know, we don't, it's not that uh, we would expect that they have different variants or that that's gonna change, um, uh, uh, you know, an individual course in that way. Um, and, uh, and if they're both definitely infected, is there something I'm missing? Um, no, I think, I think you're absolutely right. But I mean, this is an issue that comes up again, talking about housing, housing, right? I mean, there may be a family that has a two bedroom house and what you wanna do is try to limit the transmission as much as possible around the household. And, uh, you know, if two individuals are infected, but two aren't, try to get those two individuals isolated in the same room, but try to keep the other ones from not getting infected because it's gonna be really important. And, uh, and it doesn't mean that every single you know, infected individual needs to be isolated because at some point in time, again, in households, it becomes really complicated. And, and I really worry household transmission is really what is driving a lot of the transmission is the multi-generational housing is, 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 is not enough you know, living space that is driving a lot of transmission in, in black and brown communities because, you know, there's not enough space to isolate. And I think as a country, I'm really sad we've never done anything about that. You know, in many other places, if you don't have where to isolate, they'll find you a place to isolate. And we did not do that in our country. And I think that created a lot of transmission in, in households that should have never happened. No, I totally agree. Um, and, uh, and I think that's a, a, a truly important point. I was looking at the Q&A given um, the time and you know, one question that's come up quite a lot is how, you know, are there recommendations for how to advocate for increasing the priority for those living with HIV among on the vaccination scheme? And, um, and I know you're very active with state and local government would love to hear your thoughts. I would say one thing before letting you jump in though with um, probably more learned ideas 
is that there is an ACIP committee meeting coming up um, in a week or two, I think. Yeah. Um, and uh, it is very easy to make a public comment and you can uh, go to the website, ACIP vaccine COVID, um, and you can either just submit a written comment um, and advocate for exactly this, um, uh, you know, um, uh, very simply, um, or you can actually apply to make a public comment um, and, uh, and have, I think it's three minutes that you're allowed to make a public comment. That's one setting I think that can be very, very helpful if they, if there is an overrun of written comments on one topic, I think that's very impactful. And so, um, so that's one um, uh, clear opportunity, but I think there also needs to be state and regional level advocacy and um, what would you recommend in, in that way? Well, you know, you and I have talked a lot about advocacy being an incredible tool in, in what we do in HIV and health has made a big difference in many of the things. I think you just call, you just, you know, write, you call, you send an email to, to your local representative, to your representative in Congress, to you, you call, you know, the, the, you send an email to, you know, to your director of public health in your state, but you let them know what are the reasons that, you know, this is not just because, oh, I want my population to be a prioritized because as, as one of the public health, you know, director of public health in the state said to me the other day, everybody wants to be a priority. And the question is, how do you make priorities? And I think we have evidence from HIV of higher risk, higher comorbidities, worse outcomes. Use that data, frame it in that, in that respect and say, this is why this population needs to be a priority. And, and I think we, we emphasize that we're gonna get farther than just saying, you know, me too, me too, me too, which is what a lot of people are saying. And again, I worry that, you know, it's always who has the loudest voice. And I would say, you know, the HIV community has had a loud voice. Let's use it. No, absolutely. And I see one um, comment, and I'm, I'm guessing that you're asking references that show poor COVID outcomes with HIV, uh, with patients with HIV to advocate for vaccine priority. If you're asking where the references are, I can guide you to, I think, actually um, a um, commentary that is um, freely available to the public that actually summarizes that data really beautifully. And that is, uh, if you were to Google um, uh, Gandhi and Triant, uh, T-R-I-A-N-T and Gandhi, Raj Gandhi and Jean Triant from MGH wrote a terrific editorial in CID that really, again, summarized what we know um, up to last month or this month um, that includes all those references and would be a great resource uh, to make a public comment. Yeah, and I think you just, again, you know, you put it together, you, um, you know, you didn't talk much about social media, but you know, use social media, use Twitter, you know, tag your, tag your representative, say why, but I think the evidence in that paper is really good and you can actually use that in a very effective way. So as you think about, about where we're gonna be, you know, uh, in the next few months, uh, do, do you, you know, sort of, let's, let's play the crystal ball, <laughs> you know, better, <laughs> worse variants, you know, are we, we're making, we're coming down, our cases are coming down, our hospitalizations are coming down. Um, we gotta keep that, but, but I, I worry about the variants. So where do you see things and what's, what's your concern? Yeah, um, you know, I think um, it clearly the, the B117, the variant initially recognized in the UK that I wanna avoid assigning a country name to, um, is in this is in this country, and clearly it is evolving rapidly. But I also think, um, on the more hopeful side, that the vaccines that are rolling out um, have good activity against it. And so, to me, it's a race. The first, the next few months are a race between that variant and our vaccination um, rate. And if we can continue to vaccinate rapidly, I hope that we won't see what's been seen in Israel where although they, with vaccine to the older population brought down hospitalizations quite effectively, the number of cases has risen um, because younger folks haven't been vaccinated and that variant has really um, taken hold and as you've heard and read is more transmissible. So to me, the next few months are about that variant. And then the longer run is, can we get rates down and prevent the South African variant? Uh, and there I did again with the country, but uh, with the other variants um, that are um, more resistant to the vaccine effects, um, and can we keep them at bay? So a question that comes up all the time and, you know, is, you know, we'll have data, I hope soon about whether this 
vaccines prevent not only severe disease, but actually transmission. Uh, what is your gut feeling on that? My gut is that they prevent transmission probably fairly well, but we haven't seen the data yet. And I don't know that for sure. I'm sure maybe it's, it's, it's just hopeful, but I, I think that they will severely dent transmission, I hope. Uh, I, I, I feel the same way. I think, I think they're gonna show that they significantly decrease acquisition and therefore decrease transmission. And if that's the case, you know, if that's the case, then I would challenge that we need to rethink our vaccination strategy. I, I, you know, you saw probably that paper in Science recently saying that 20 to 49 years old are the ones that that are sort of, you know, driving the epidemic in our country. And what you said in Israel is young people. And you almost think about, okay, maybe we should vaccinate those 20 to 49 years old because in fact, especially now that, you know, if the FDA gives an EUA to the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, a single shot vaccine, maybe that's the population we ought to get the vaccine to and, and quickly try to see if we can bring down rates of transmission in the younger population. Again, I just think that many of those are also at high risk of HIV. That's the population that, you know, we have been struggling for many years trying to get them in PrEP and, and other prevention interventions. But it's the same old problem, right? It, uh, if you're young and healthy, you don't access healthcare. Um, you're, you're invincible. <laughs> you're invincible. Healthcare is expensive, too expensive. And so if you're young and healthy, you know, preventive medicine is not uh, prioritized, uh, particularly in this country that doesn't incentivize it. So, um, so yeah, that's, and that is, again, the, uh, again the, the, um, the nugget that's in our favor for our patients living with HIV is that they are in healthcare systems and are coming to see us on a regular basis and therefore are, in, in some uh, respects, a little bit of a captive audience. Um, that is not true for, for those without, that are not living with HIV and don't have chronic diseases that require follow-up. So are you seeing an increase again in, in, H, in HIV testing rates, speaking about that? Because, you know, we saw for a while just a significant drop in the amount of HIV testing that was happening. Yeah, I think it is going to take time for us to get back on course. Um, I think I'm, uh, I'm heartened by the shift in clinics to be both flexible with telemedicine, and, which I think has really great advantages and some disadvantages as well. And so I don't think is the panacea for all things, but I'm heartened in care that I think most clinics are back to speed in, in some way or another. Um, I think we are um, catching up a little bit on STI testing where we've had shortages um, as well as less in uh, clinic traffic. Um, but I think we're still behind the eight ball there. I think we're still behind on HIV testing. Um, I'm hopeful that um, PrEP will start to pick back up, um, uh, again, using tele and other kinds of um, avenues. But I think the testing avenues uh, are, 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 are going to take a minute. I think we've probably set back to end the epidemic um, a, a bit. Yeah, I'm really worried about that. And I'm just hoping that we don't set up the end the epidemic too much and that we keep our eye on the ball, that at the end of the day, what we need to focus, yeah, COVID is an emergency right now. But HIV is, is, when COVID is gone, HIV is still going to be here. And we need to address the HIV epidemic. And I think as HIV providers, part of our advocacy has to be also remind people that HIV is still here. And we cannot just become, you know, the COVID country. And not only that, but what we need to do is grab, again, some of these um, uh, really uh, fantastic uh, things that have happened, uh, the silver lining of COVID, which not only is telemedicine, but things like uh, uh, decreased bureaucracy in other ways and more flexibility uh, with prescriptions and mailing prescriptions and being Ryan White certified and doing that by mail or by fax. And you know, we need to grab some of these flexibilities that got into the system with COVID and keep them. And I think uh, that's, that's really, really important because like you said, HIV will outlast COVID. That, that is one crystal ball I'm pretty sure of. Yeah. Well, I've really enjoyed our conversation and I hope people also enjoyed it. I think we have a lot to learn and, and, uh, and I think we have a lot to contribute. And I think, again, HIV clinicians have been at the forefront of, of, of you know, HIV researchers have been at the front, front, forefront of doing a lot of the research around COVID. And I think we have a lot to contribute going forward to, to ending the COVID epidemic, but keep that, keep that energy to also uh, continue ending the HIV epidemic, not forget that part. No, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Right? Underscore times 12. 
Okay, well, I, I want to uh, wish everybody, uh, well, thank everybody for listening. Uh, if wherever you are, uh, good evening or good afternoon. And uh, uh, thank you for listening and uh, look forward to having you join us for the upcoming uh, dialogues. There are a couple coming up. Uh, you can see the upcoming dialogues are available at the IESUSA website, www.iesusa.org. And uh, look forward to hearing from you again. All right, thank you so much, everybody, for, for joining.